morning, church. How y'all doing? Morning. God is good. Amen. Uh, let's pray, and then we'll get into the Word. We'll be opening your Bibles, if you have, to Judges chapter 3. Uh, we'll focus there for most of the morning, although we'll quote to some other passages in Scripture. So let's just bow our head and pray for a minute. Father, we just thank you for this day, Lord. Uh, such a beautiful day outside. We thank you for all that you've done for us throughout this week as we come together on the first day of the week, Lord, just to honor your son who's been raised on the dead on a Sunday, Father God. We glorify your name. We pray that your spirit be with us this morning, that it transform our hearts and minds as we hear your word, that you be glorified in the preaching of your word, and that uh, you use your word to help us make an impact in our city. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. So if you have no uh, idea of what the book of Judges is about, um, it's right after Joshua takes takes possession of the land. And this is the second generation after Joshua. And what we learn is that Joshua failed to take the whole land. They did, failed to conquer the whole land. They failed to drive out all their enemies. And in Judges chapter 3... We learn about three different judges. Uh, one was a righteous man. One was a handicapped left-handed man who assassinates a very large king. And then we also have an outsider who becomes an insider. So what can these three judges teach us? Not only about ourselves, but also about Jesus. And Judges chapter 1, 3 through 6, uh, they function as two different introductions to the book of Judges. One is about Joshua and his generation's failure to complete the conquest. Now, the second introduction is a theological description of the cycle of compromise, sin, God's discipline, and judgment. And then the people cry out for help. And God raises uh, saviors that will deliver them and provide rest to the land. And in Judges 3, we come to case studies, or it starts the case studies of the individual stories of deliverance through specific people who the Bible describes as judges. So what we'll find in the history of Israel is that the people of God turn to insufficient saviors and, and other gods to fulfill their needs, which lead to bondage in the end. And the people of God cry out for help when they're in bondage, and the Lord raises up these judges to deliver them, and these judges are raised up to save Israel. But we will, what we will discover if you keep going through the book of Judges is that even these judges are insufficient saviors who point us to a sufficient savior, ultimately, which is Jesus Christ. And we'll discover in the nation of Israel that complacency leads to compromise, and compromise leads to disobedience, and disobedience leads to adultery. Complacency leads to compromise, compromise leads to disobedience, and disobedience leads to idolatry. And in our disobedience, whether intentionally or unintentionally, we are actually saying to God, I found something more trustworthy than you. I found something more trustworthy than your promises. And what we discover in chapter 3 is that the Israelites have a problem. And their problem is heart forgetfulness. Heart forgetfulness. And we discover that there's a, the problem is heart forgetfulness. We discover that God disciplines heart forgetfulness 
And then we discover the proper response to heart forgetfulness. And then finally, we'll see that these insufficient saviors are pointing to a sufficient savior in Jesus Christ. So what is heart forgetfulness? The problem of heart forgetfulness. So if you have your Bibles open to Judges 3, just look down to verse 7 real quick. And it says, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherah. So turn down to Judges 3.12, and it says this. Again, the same story. And the people of Israel, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. In these passages, what is evil in the sight of the Lord? In verse 7, it says, They did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. The, next very, the very next phrase, They forgot the Lord their God. They forgot the Lord. What does it mean to forget the Lord? Does forgetfulness mean that they just don't remember the facts about Yahweh? They don't remember the covenant promises? They don't remember the law? Is that what he's talking about? Did they suddenly forget all that they knew about the Lord? Was Israel just acting out of ignorance or a lack of knowledge? Some of you have kids here today. And maybe some of you have told them, go clean your room. And a few hours later, they're doing something else, and the room is still a mess. And you ask, why is it your room clean? And some of them may say, I forgot. Now, did they really forget that they needed to clean the room? Probably not. But they found something they were more attracted to, or found something more important to them than cleaning the room. That's good. When, when we read, they forgot the Lord, we need to understand that forgetfulness means that they forgot they that they didn't forget Yahweh's covenant, they didn't forget Yahweh's laws, they didn't forget the words of God. It's just that they were no longer important to them. They were no longer the guiding principles of their lives. They found something else they were attracted to. The Israelites knew who God was and what God required of them, but those things were not real to them anymore. What they begin to do is blend idol worship with the worship of Yahweh, and they picked what they like about the law of God, the word of God, and mixed it with the worship of the nations that surrounded them. They wanted to be the rulers of their own lives. They wanted to do what seemed right in their own eyes. Is that a problem today? Amen. Do we know the words of Jesus, but sometimes refuse to listen to them? Do we sometimes choose what's right in our own eyes? Or do we pick and choose what we want to obey and we want what we want to disobey? Is what we know as true and real not a reality in our heart and the way we live our lives? Forgetfulness leads to idolatry. When God created us, he created us to worship and glorify him. The Westminster Catechism says the ultimate purpose of humanity is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And the problem is that sin entered the world. Adam and Eve forgot about the goodness of God and believed the words of the serpent and their own desires. And they choose to do what was right in their own eyes. And as a result, sin entered and fractured our world. 
And now we are born into a world corrupt with sin, which includes our human heart. And that's the problem, because we are humans created to worship and glorify God, and we are fractured because of our sinful hearts. And our sinful hearts lead us to craft idols that please our own desires. John Calvin said the human heart is an idol factory, and we continue to produce idols that please ourselves. The Lord says, forgetting me and turning to, to love and worship other idols, this is evil in the Lord's sight. This is evil. And it's certainly a very different definition of what evil means than what we use today. And what we discover in Judges chapter 3 is that God disciplines heart forgiveness. Look at verse 8. It says, therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathim eight years. Then if you go down to verse 12, it says, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. God's response to heart forgetfulness and idolatry is anger. God is angry. God was upset. God was angry. And that word means hot in the nose. It gives a picture when someone is very angry and their nose flares up. God was so angry that his nose flared up. So what did the Lord do? Something I find interesting is, is when you read this passage, something that pops out to me is that the Lord is mentioned 15 times in Judges chapter 3, the name of the Lord. So when something's repeated in the scriptures, there's a reason. And the Lord is letting us know that he is sovereign over all. And notice what God does is that he arranges the nations and kings to discipline the people of God. We have the king of Mesopotamia and then the king of Moab coming to discipline the people of God because the Lord is sovereign and he will do what he pleases and he will even use his enemies for his purpose. And that's what we find here when these people of Israel forget about the Lord, when their heart strays away, we see that the nations, the king of Mesopotamia, the king of Moab, come as a tool to discipline the people of God. Something else I find interesting is that God usually uses what attracts our heart to stray from him to discipline us. Mm. So the thing, the very thing that we are attracted to that strays us from the heart, from the way or from the heart of God, God uses that very thing to discipline us. Wow. Look who God raises up to discipline them, the people of Israel, the very nations that they didn't drive out. God, that's who God uses to discipline the people of Israel. You know, they became complacent with these nations that lived with them. And they began to worship with them. And it was those very nations which came and subjected them to slavery, to bondage. If you are a child of God, then you can't be friends with the world. You can't be friends with the world. That's something that the book of Judges very clearly teaches us. In the life of Israel, God was using the surrounding nations 
of whose gods they were worshiping, God told them he was going to do, and God told them he was going to do this too. If you read Judges chapter 1 and chapter 2, God told them he was going to do this. To go to, if you have your Bibles, turn to Judges chapter 2 verse 3. And this is what God tells them. So now I say I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. God told them, hey, you didn't drive out the nations, so now I'm going to use them as thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. They'll be a trap for you. Verse 21, same book, Judges chapter 2, same chapter. He says this, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. God says, I'm going to leave these nations and I'm going to use them to test the people of Israel. And when they fail, he uses them to judge the people of Israel. God told them, since you didn't drive out the nations, I will use them to test Israel to see if they will walk in my ways or if they will fall. And we read what happened. They began worshiping the God of these nations. And God uses the very nations to begin that began worshiping, they began worshiping with to discipline them. Mm. Complacency leads to compromise. Compromise leads to disobedience. Disobedience leads to idolatry. To gain the favor and blessing of Yahweh, the people of Israel needed to keep the covenant with Yahweh. That's what they needed to do. Keep the covenant with Yahweh and all would have went well for them in the land. That was the promises from Deuteronomy chapter 28. But they did not remain faithful. They sacrificed the blessed life for what they thought was going to lead them to a good life. They sacrificed the blessed life for what they thought was going to lead them to a good life. Can I ask you a question this morning? Something to get your mind thinking? What are you sacrificing on the altar for an idol? What are you giving up God's blessing for? For what you think will lead to a good life. Are you giving up the blessed life. For what you think is going to give you a good life. Or a better life. Ultimately that is what we are telling God. When we choose to stray from the path of obedience. We are telling him that my way is better. We're telling God let me show you how it's done. And thankfully we serve a gracious God. Who chooses to discipline those he loves. God chooses to discipline those he loves because God's discipline is his grace to draw you back to him for the purpose of growth in righteousness and holiness. For the purpose of growth in righteousness and holiness. Look what Hebrews 12, 3 through 11 says. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son, do not disregard, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. Who does the Lord discipline? The one he loves. And chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure 
God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? You see, when God disciplines his children, it's not to punish his children for sin. If you are a believer, Christ has taken your punishment on the cross for you. God's wrath was poured out on Jesus. It wasn't poured out on me and it wasn't poured out on you. God's discipline is not about punishment. But one of the goals is to bring you back into right relationship with your heavenly father. That is one of the purposes of discipline. To bring you back into right relationship with your heavenly father. Hebrews 12 goes on to say, For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So the other reason for discipline is in order that we may grow in holiness and bear fruits of righteousness. One is to bring us back into a right relationship with God, and the other is to bring us so that we may grow in holiness and bear fruits of righteousness. That's the purpose of God's discipline for his children. It's not punishment. It's not to punish you for your sin. It's to bring you in right relationship with him again. And the proper response to God's discipline, how should we respond to God's discipline? Look at Judges 3, 9 and verse 9 and then verse 15. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Canaz, Caleb's younger brother. Verse 15 says, Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. So what is the proper response? What did the people of Israel do? They cried out to the Lord. That's the proper response. Turn back to the Lord. The nation of Israel cried out to the Lord. And the Lord was attuned to the cries of his people. Just remember the exodus. When the people groaned and cried out for God. What does it say? That God heard them. God heard them. God hears the cries of his people. God hears the cries of his people. And not only does he hear it, he identifies with them. And as we see in the book of Judges, God responds to the cries of his people because he cares for them. His love and grace towards us is deep and wide. And at just the right time, he delivers his people. Mm. So how do we reverse heart forgetfulness? What is the cure for heart forgetfulness? Remember. That's the cure. Remember. Look at what 2 Peter 1, 5 through 12 says. Peter is writing and he says, For this very reason, make every effort. Stop there for a second. Every effort. Does that sound like it will be easy? To me, it doesn't sound like it will be easy. It sounds like it's work. 
But every relationship which is lasting and meaningful takes work. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a very powerful passage. Uh, what Peter is saying is that if we say we trust Jesus' life and death and resurrection for the forgiveness of our sins, for the salvation of our lives, that these qualities will characterize our life. Mm. The qualities of faith and virtue and knowledge and self-control and steadfastness and godliness and brotherly affection and love these qualities will characterize our lives. And they will also keep us from being ineffective and unfruitful. So we need these truths to work in our heart as well as our head. Peter goes on to say, For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, and having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. See, heart forgiveness is not just an Old Testament problem. Peter says if you lack these qualities, you are nearsighted, you are blind, and you have forgotten what the Lord has done for you. He goes on to say, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Listen to that. Just... I'm always flabbergasted by that sentence or that phrase, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Therefore I intend always to remind you. What does Peter always intend to do? Remind you of these qualities. Though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. Peter knows that our problem is that we are nearsighted people. We are forgetful people just like the Israelites were. Peter even says if we practice these qualities you will never fall. That is saying a lot coming from Peter who rebuked Jesus. Who denied Jesus. Who went back to being a fisherman after Jesus died. Which is why Peter says. I intend always to remind you of these qualities. We need to latch on to the gospel of Jesus as our only hope. And how can we make sure we remember? Prayer. Being God's word. Daily. Fellowship with the saints. Develop accountability with other believers. That will call you out. Not only tell you you're doing a great job. But will call you out on your mess. That's how you make sure you remember. Listen. Listen to the word. Listen to the preaching. Listen to your spouse. Because that's, that's our problem. Is that we forget. And when we forget. It leads to compromise. It leads to disobedience. It leads to idolatry. 
Let's look at the ins insufficient saviors, which point to the sufficiency of the Savior, Jesus Christ. First Savior God raises up, we read about is Othniel. Othniel is probably my hero in the book of Judges. He's probably the only judge that was righteous. I don't think there's anything bad ever said about Othniel. The Bible tells us that the Lord raised up Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. And we should not be surprised that the Lord raised up Othniel. Nor should we be surprised by his courage and his faithfulness because he had someone who displayed it for him. Caleb, who would take on the giants, who said to uh, Joshua, give me this mountain. He remained courageous and faithful throughout his whole life. And Othniel seen that in Caleb. It says that the Spirit of the Lord was upon him and empowered him, and he gave him victory over the king of Mesopotamia. And then it says the land had rest for 40 years, and Othniel died. And what happened? Rest died with him. As honorable and faithful as Othniel was, he was insufficient to provide lasting rest. And he leaves us longing for the one who will give us eternal freedom and eternal rest. He leaves us longing for Jesus. Look at what Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 29. Come to me, all who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Come to me, and I will give you rest, eternal rest. <coughs> Look at what Hebrews 4, 7 through 16 says. Again, he appoints a certain day. Today, saying through David, so long afterward in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would have spoken another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and of the spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus is our rest. Jesus is our lasting rest. And he said, man, if Joshua could have given you this kind of rest, there would not be a need for another word. But Joshua was, there was no rest in Joshua. It was not eternal rest. You could only find that in Jesus Christ. Mm. You can only find that in Jesus Christ. And he said, man, Jesus came down from the heavens to the earth to live a life that you couldn't live. And because he lived that life and because he died, he said, man, this rest is available to you. Today, 
Don't harden your hearts. Enter into God's rest. And then we learn of Ehud. Ehud was a bad man. He was a left-handed man, most likely because his right hand was deformed uh, in some way. And a man uh, no one would pick to deliver the people of Israel. No one would have picked this guy to deliver Israel. Yet through deception and sleight of hand, this man assassinates a king and led his people to freedom. He assassinates a king and leads his people to freedom. Ehud points us to Jesus, one who was not regarded by men, one who came from the lowliest of places, born in a manger, raised in the town of Nazareth, someone the world would not believe to be God's chosen rescuer. Paul tells us, for the word of the, the, word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Again, Paul says, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But those who are being called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. You see, unlike Ehud, the triumph of Jesus did not come by assassinating a king. It did not come by assassinating the Roman emperor. The triumph of Jesus comes through the King of Kings being killed on a cross, which would appear to be a crushing defeat, but was the most glorious victory ever. And then finally, in Judges 3.31, we, we read of Shamgar, and it's, this is all we know about Shamgar. Verse 31, after him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with the ox gold, and he also saved Israel. What about Shamgar, the one-sentence judge, who uses an ox gold to, to deliver Israel? You see, Shamgar, what we don't know is, is he's an outsider. If you notice, his name is not Hebrew. His name is, Gentile, is a Gentile origin. Yet he is regarded as a deliverer of Israel. He's the outsider that became an insider, like Rahab and Ruth. Jesus is the insider who was treated like an outsider. Jesus, being God himself, was taken outside the camp, where the lepers, the unclean, the leftover Old Testament animal sacrifices were taken outside the camp in our place by his own people listen to what Hebrews 13 12 14 says so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood therefore and this is the call this is the call for me this is the call for you therefore let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city. But we seek the city that is to come. Mm. That's the call. And that's the, the, the proper response. To never forget. To not have the problem with heart, heart forgiveness. That we must go to him outside the camp. 
bear the reproach he endured. Why? Because we're not living for anything this earth can offer us. We're living for a city that is to come. And that's something, that is the challenge for us who are living in this world now. Who are faced with all the, all the temptations that the world has to offer out there. Do we want this city? Or do we want the lasting city? The city that is to come. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the challenge it is for us today.